So we'll get back to Mark Ghali in a bit. Now that I have my notes, we can go according to plan. I'd like to first open it up for discussion and ask you, look at the title here. This is the grace of God in the Old Testament. But look what I hope we will do this morning, if by God's grace we will. And that is wrestling with the wrath of God. So I'm sorry for kind of giving you a suggestion, but the question I want to put out to you, please keep your answers short, is what picture do you have in your mind when you hear the phrase, the God of the Old Testament? What comes to your mind? What were you taught in Sunday school? Uh, what misconceptions have you heard? You've never heard this phrase before? <laughs> I should have asked someone to start us off. Go ahead. The, the God of the covenant, okay? The God who makes a promise and keeps it rich. Okay, that which is kind of our subject this morning, so I did prepare Rich to say that, but <laughs> anything else? Yeah, and really, there's no right answer here. Do you find any difference between the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, or you think God of the Old Testament? Yes, in the back. I don't have my glasses, so now you're all a nice fuzzy blur. So go ahead. <laughs> And thank you, and you're not the only one. Uh, our oldest son, our middle child, has a tremendous theological, and now, and not just theological, personal problem with the God of the Old Testament who commands Israel to wipe out cities and peoples. I was gonna say that they seem to conflict that well with the Old Testament. Right. We could go on, and we're not gonna resolve all these this morning. But we are going to focus on what Rich said, that certainly I grew up with this kind of picture. The God of the Old Testament certainly is a God of love, but he's the God of thundering judgment from the mountain, of fire. And the God of the New Testament is Jesus on the cross and rising from the dead and restoring Peter to the faith and restoring all of us, uh, causing us to be born again. And not even recognizing that in my mind, I might be having a dichotomy thinking, well, God is like this but God is like this. And now back to Mark's comment that he made the first week, and I'm sure he didn't mean anything by it, so I'm not picking on him. It's just something I'm afraid all of us might fall into. When he talks about a, a deeper truth, overcoming uh, God's law, God's justice, or even C.S. Lewis, and uh, he wrote many great theological books, but the ones I remember are the Narnias, the, Chronicle, the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan explains to uh, Suzanne and Lucy that there is a greater truth before the dawn of time overcoming the truth that the White Witch did have, according to the law, the right to demand Edmund's sacrifice. Edmund belonged to her because of his betrayal. But Aslan talks about a greater truth. And one of the things I would like to at least talk about this morning is that, and let's see what our first slide says. I'll be as surprised as you are. Okay, where do I point this?
Yeah, that's when I'm clicking. Here we go. We'll use the uh, computer. If I had asked you what is the greatest commandment, you would have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and, your and then the second is like it, your neighbor is yourself, which is the greatest commandment and something we should focus on just as much. But actually, Jesus answers what is the greatest of the commandments. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. He is a unity. He does not have within himself a struggle that his grace struggles against his justice or his anger struggles against his compassion. And he would like to be just, but he can't, but his grace will overcome his justice or his compassion will overcome his holiness. That is not God. God is gracious and God is just and God is holy and in him there is no conflict. And I hope to show that to you this morning as we wrestle with the wrath of God that is revealed. Uh, it's revealed in Revelation. It's revealed on the cross when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And it's definitely revealed in the Old Testament with so many prophets pronouncing judgment either against other nations or against the people of God. So the first thing I want you to understand is that God is a unity. He is one, and there is no conflict. Now, before we get to the wrath of God, we need to, oh, this was also, when talking about the works of the flesh, uh, Paul uses the plural, the works of the flesh are, but when talking about the fruit of the spirit, he uses the singular, the fruit of the spirit is. Now, you would think the fruit of the spirit, the fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, but that's not what Paul says. Paul says the fruit of the spirit, in other words, the character of Christ in you is a singular, and it is love, and it is joy, and it is peace, and it is patience, and it's also not what he says here, it is also holiness and goodness, and many things that he doesn't share. So, um, the first truth that I wanted us to just remember is that God is a unity, a one, and there's no conflict within himself. Second truth I would like us to remember that we would like to avoid talking about before talking about the wrath of God is that sin corrupts. And this is something we must remember. And the reason we must remember it is because, well, sorry, I won't talk about you, I'll talk about me. <laughs> I dabble with sin. I don't treat it seriously. I say, well, this isn't that important. Either what I'm thinking about, or what I'm watching, or what I'm reading, or how I'm reacting, or what comes out of my mouth, we have a friend who, uh, Gosha has been to see a doctor, that doctor shall remain nameless, and we have a friend who also goes to that doctor, and they came to bring a meal, bless their hearts, and we got talking about that doctor, and I said, well, she's moved, she was shut down uh, by the FDA because she was playing games with the insurance codes, la, 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 and it turned out I was, I was just wrong. I flat out gossiped about a sister, this doctor is a Christian, about a sister in the Lord, who for totally other reasons had closed down her clinic and I had assumed the worst and had passed it on to another person. And we are all guilty of not taking sin seriously and the problem with that is that sin corrupts. Paul writes, in reference to your former manner of life, 
that you lay aside the old self. Now, books and books have been written about what is the old self. Let me just sum it up for you. The old self is everything you are without Jesus. That's all it is. The new self is everything you are with Jesus. And that is, the new self is what is being conformed to the image of Christ. The gospel is not behavior modification, helping your old self to become better and better. Because Paul says the old self is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. When I don't walk with Jesus, I do worse things than I did 20 years ago. That's not theory, that's fact. I cannot believe some of the stuff that comes out of my mouth that I wouldn't even thought 20 years ago if I'm not walking with Christ. Sin corrupts. And this explains, we're not there yet. This explains, I believe, the wrath of God. When we talk about the wrath of God, we have an old saying that says, uh, God hates the sin and loves the sinner. Yes, true, kind of. <laughs> God hates the sin, he loves the sinner, and I'm sorry I don't, I don't know what happened to the verse. The next verse I wanted to put up here is where God says, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. God has no pleasure in pronouncing judgment and no pleasure in seeing that judgment fall through on the wicked. Why does he do it? If you look at Jesus, Jesus associated with the sinners. He associated with the tax gatherers. He associated with the prostitutes. He associated with those who knew they were sinners. Who were his harshest words for? They were for the Pharisees, for the teachers, and for the scribes. And why? Not so much for their legalism, but because of the barriers that they put up preventing other people from coming to the life of God and the grace of God. And so there is a point where God's hatred of sinners is not that he hates the person. He takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. But he does hate the fact that sin not only corrupts me, but what I think about or what I do in my office affects how I treat my wife. How we respond to each other affects how we treat other people. And sin not only corrupts me, but it corrupts those that I have in contact with. Now, most of the time, those ripples are small, and we don't see them, and so we don't think about it. But the biblical principle is that sin leads to death. Leads to death physically, leads to death in our relationships. Instead of having life in our relationship, it leads to death in our relationships. It leads to death in my actions. Uh, I won't explain why, but I just uh, did my taxes and you know, had my bank account clipped for another $5,000 that I wasn't expecting, et cetera, et cetera. You know. So that whole thing about taxes, what I do there, those ripples, even though no one may ever find out, uh, by the way, they were done correctly, but if I did not do them correctly on purpose, if I hid income, which is easy to do, if I did all those things, that changes me and therefore that changes how I relate to people. And we can, if you, if you are not convinced that sin corrupts, for those of us who are older, and I apologize to the younger generation, take our word for it, we, what is accepted now as good was unthinkable when I was in college. Because sin not only corrupts in a person and corrupts in relationships, it corrupts in a society. And it is that corruption and preventing people from coming to the Lord, to coming to life, that God hates. 
And so we must understand when God talks about his wrath, his wrath is on sin, his wrath is on the effects of sin. I believe he weeps over the effects of sin in our life, but I believe his anger is great towards those who cause others to stumble. Jesus says, woe unto him to whom stumbling blocks come. And when talking about little children, he said it would be better if a millstone was tied around his neck and cast into the sea. Mark started us off two weeks ago saying, we have to understand the seriousness of sin if we're going to talk about grace. I think we need to talk about the seriousness of sin in order to understand the wrath of God. So with that as background, oh, I do have these. <laughs> Sorry. As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And then, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. It is that that the Lord hates. And woe, uh, the last truth before we talk about the wrath of God is God not only knows what has been in the minutest detail, God not only knows what is in the minutest detail, and God not only knows what will be, but most importantly, God knows what would have been. Now this is not taught explicitly, but it is Im implied when Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethesda. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. This is going to be important when we now try to look at the wrath of God. So let me read some passages to you out of Ezekiel chapter 5. And we, I've spent quite a bit of time in Ezekiel 5, 6, and 7. This is, you know, people accuse me of going to the darkest side possible. Guilty as charged. So these are some of the harshest prophecies in the Old Testament. And I chose them for a reason. God is talking to Jerusalem and to Israel, to Judah. Let's remember how far Israel had come from meeting with God at the mountain where he appeared to them in fire on Mount Sinai and gave his commandments. They had slid through the corruption of sin to the point that they were sacrificing their sons and daughters to Moloch the idol. And some of them were sacrificing their sons and daughters to some representation that they called Yahweh himself, as if Yahweh himself had demanded the sacrifice of their sons and daughters. Now, was there oppression of the poor? Yes, there's a whole prophecy book of the Bible judge, calling judgment, calling to repentance of the rich and those who give work of their oppression of the poor. Was there many other terrible things going on? Yes. And God has said judgment is coming, and this is what he says. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you, and sons will eat their fathers. For I will execute judgments on you and scatter all your remnants every wind. Goes on and on. I, I just thought reading all three chapters might wear you down a bit. So, verse 12 One third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword around you. And one third I will scatter to every wind, and I will unsheathe a sword behind them to chase them with the sword. And he goes on Moreover, I will send on you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of children. Plague and bloodshed also will pass through you and I will bring the sword on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. If we are to talk about the grace of God and have confidence in the grace of God in our lives, 
we have to wrestle with the God who said these words. So tell me, what do you think or what do you feel when you read this? A little bit of sharing, please, if we could. These are not easy words. Very good. Who else? Yes. One more. Oh, go ahead. Two more. Just, right, just two more comments and then got to get back on track. And then Father Martin to end. Just to say God has every right to do this. Yes. Right. And I would, I'm just going to add, and it's this anger he poured out on Christ for us. Martin. Some say that Paul, his first comment was, I am the least of all the, all the apostles. And then he goes to later in life, I am the least of all the saints. And at the end of his life, I am the worst of all sinners. I think I've got that correct. And I would 100% I would agree. Uh, my heart is described in Jeremiah when Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked. Uh, who can understand it? But I want to go back to, do I really know who God is? because that's also my reaction. How do I mesh this truly? I'm gonna give it a shot, let's see if we can do it. So uh, here are some other passages from Ezekiel chapter five through seven. And I'm gonna ask you to look for signs of grace in these pronouncements of judgment. So there's two of them here, one in six, three and four, and the other in seven, three through four. Listen to the word of the Lord. Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword on you and I will destroy your high places, so your altars will become desolate, and your incense altars will be smashed, and I will make you slain fall in front of your idols. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways and bring all your abominations upon you. For my eye will have no pity on you, nor will I spare you, but I will bring your ways upon you, and your abominations will be among you. Do you see any signs of grace? here in these two passages. Any? I think the fact that he says this is coming from you 
That's exactly what David said. Very good. Who else? I didn't want to teach this morning. That's why I prefer you teach. Go ahead. <laughs> true. Anybody else? Mary. And I would start there. That's excellent. I didn't see that, so thank you, Mary. Go ahead. Yes. That's my first one. Is that God's first one is God says, listen to the word of the Lord, as Mary said. So now it's our second. That God is not just judging. He's removing some of the causes of their sin. He's going to prune their lives. Now, that's a desperate pruning, but this is grace. No, no, you can't. That's my next slide. You can't do it. That's my, no. <laughs> you can't. <work. laughs> I'm, I, I'm pretty sure I know if, if what my next slide isn't exactly what you were going to say, okay. I'll come back to you. <laughs> Let me move on because time is slipping away here. And the second one is that I will bring all your abominations upon you. There is a mercy and there is a grace that allows us to experience the consequences of our sin. Now, how many times have I prayed? Uh, I'll never forget. <laughs> this, is, this is a silly example, but it's true for all of us to supply it to your own life. I'm single. I'm at my very first training for Campus Crusade for Christ staff. We're, we're going through our Institute of Biblical Studies. And we, I can't even remember the name of the course. And there's 650 of us in this huge hall. And we're taking the final exam. And this is actually for credit through some seminary. And the person giving the exam stands up and says, let's open in prayer. And I don't know, remember what he prayed, except for he prayed. And Lord, we don't ask that you bring to mind anything we ourselves didn't study. And I go, not true, Lord. <laughs> I pray for everything to be brought to my mind, including everything I didn't read because I was goofing off. Or, you know, we ask all the time to be delivered from the consequences of our own sinful actions. That's just part of being human. And God very often hears that and answers that prayer. But there are times the Lord says, you need to understand it's an abomination. Even the little sin. It's an abomination. Even the sin no one will see. I tolerate it. The Lord does not because of the consequences in my life and the consequences to other people. So here are three. As Mary said, listen to the word of the Lord. Two, I'm going to take away those high places. And three, I'm going to bring your abominations on you. In other words, I'm going to bring the consequences of your actions, of your sinful actions. And then I believe this is what you're getting to. I chopped off the end of verse 4. Is that? Yes, yes absolutely. This is what verse 4 actually says. Now the end is, a, well, let's just jump to verse 4. Uh, For my eye will have no pity on you, nor will I spare you, but I will bring your ways upon you, and your abominations will be among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Two times in chapters 5, all these judgments, and then God interrupts and says, then you will know, and if I could bring an interpretation, I am doing this so that you will know 
then I am the Lord. Four times in chapter 6, two more times in chapter 7, eight times total, and it's not me standing over you saying, now you know who's boss here. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about you have forgotten me, the one who formed you, the one who made you, the one who called you, the one who saved you, the one who has provided for you all these years. You have forgotten me, and I need you to know for your sake, for the end for the sake of my holiness, I need you to know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And so all these judgments upon Israel, I believe God has this in mind, that they would repent and return to him. Now the judgments against the other nations, that's harder. Oh, before we get to that. This is where now it comes in that God would know what has happened. I believe since God knows what would have happened, I believe God sent blessing, which he definitely did. There were times where Israel, which never had a good king, they were all idolaters, and the northern kingdom was blessed with abundance and prosperity and power, and they did not return to him. He sent famine, times of Elijah and Ahab and the rest, and three and a half years without rain. Imagine in that arid place how deep the famine was and they still didn't repent. He gave them peace and security, and they didn't repent. And he sent armies against them, and they didn't repent. And so the Lord, the God who knows what would have happened has said, there is no other way now except for judgment, but my goal is still good, and this is my grace. This wrath is my grace, so that you will know that I am the Lord. The goal of this time is that you would have no doubt, no doubt, that God is gracious. Absolutely gracious. Now the very difficult thing about the Lord using Israel to wipe out nations or to wipe out cities, that's really a subject for another day, but I need you to understand that that wrath is still that those nations would influence Israel to turn away from the Lord and his overall I would say he would know that there is no repentance for their people because he's blessed them with the rain, he's blessed them with abundance, and they still did not follow the signs of creation and the signs of, of God in their own conscience. They turned from him, and so there was no hope. And so it was time to remove this nation, and Israel was his avenging arm so that this nation would not influence others to great wickedness. That's a very short answer, and I apologize for it, but we need to move on. We're going to transition now from the Old Testament, and we're going to now have another quote from a very famous person, uh, and that is with a tremendous, from a tremendous source, and that person is Matthew Milner. <laughs> and the, and you ready, Matt? And the source is Facebook. <laughs> Gosha, Gosha and I are talking, and she says, you have to read Matt's post on Facebook, and you have to understand. I'm signed up for Facebook and I haven't been there in three years. I just, just, sorry, not me. I let my wife tell me what's important. And she says, this is important. So she sent it to me. Apparently you were in Romania and you were getting a tour of monasteries and other things and the monk, so Matthew Milner. So as I said, the monk who has facilitated our monastic tour has earned his sermon. He asks us in Romanian, translated by our host, a simple question. 
What is the point of our learning about key moments in the history of Byzantium or modern orthodoxy if we aren't going to be transformed by these truths ourselves? This is, I'm sorry, I apologize for saying this, but I simply am compelled to. What is the point of us spending all this time on grace if we do not allow it to transform our lives? Now, there are great subjects coming. Frankly, I, there are so many subjects there, I wish I could teach them all, because it's grace and marriage, one of my favorites, and grace and raising kids, and grace in the office, and grace and, and all these things. So this is definitely coming. But I would like to talk about the very basics of how grace works on a daily basis. And I'm going to use myself as an example, and I apologize for that. If you would ask the average evangelical, so how is a person saved? What would be the typical response? I and mean, I'm looking for two words here. <laughs> no, no, two words. <laughs> but no, come on, two words. What does the average evangelical what does the average evangelical say? By faith. <laughs> At least when I was growing up, and yes, I'm old, but when I was growing up, it was no, by faith, by faith, by faith. But the problem is that is not the answer. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace. You have been saved through faith. In other words, the first step is God's. God reaches out to us in his grace and offers something that we could never achieve on our own, no matter how many good works we did. That first step is his. Our response is to believe it. It's faith. And then if you would read the next verse 10, it's also to act on it. For we were created for the purpose of good works. Paul, the, the problem is, is that we start by, and I'm going to use two words here, we start by grace through faith, and then we immediately think that our sanctification is going to be covered by the flesh and the law. All of us do it, and I know all of us do it, because God thought it was so important that he had Paul write a whole book of the Bible with just one theme. And as far as I know, it's the only book in the New Testament with just one theme, the book of Galatians, where Paul actually writes, he says some really unbelievable things in the book of, uh, book of Galatians that you would be surprised to find in scripture. But uh, he says, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Why would you start with the uh, grace through faith and the spirit and yet think you're going to end up with the works of the flesh of the law? Why would you think that? He wrote a verse to Colossians which changed my life. Colossians 2.6, therefore, as you received Jesus Christ the Lord, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And the Lord just showed me one day, I became a Christian by God reaching out to me, and I responded in faith. I walk my Christian life the exact same way. It doesn't matter what I did the day before. It doesn't matter what I did the night before. It doesn't matter how much Gosh and I argue, which, of course, we never do. This is just a theoretical example. Uh, God starts the day by offering me his grace for that day. And it's simply my role, my responsibility, to respond by faith and do the works he's calling me to do by grace and the power of his spirit. So 
I apologize that this example is so dramatic, but it's where we are. All of you know that my wife has cancer. Most of you don't know that she had a CT scan uh, and the cancer has spread greatly. And the oncologist who used to, when Goshi would talk about stopping treatment, the oncologist would say, never, no, excuse me, he would say, no way, you're much too healthy, you're too strong, there's lots more we can try, there's lots more we can do, you simply cannot give up again. Uh, excuse me, you cannot give up. And this time he explained the results of the CT scan for us and said, I have another type of chemo, because this last one obviously isn't working. He says, I have another kind of chemo if you want, but if you want to stop, that's also an acceptable option right now. And uh, so Gosh and I prayed about it and we decided to stop. So she will not see the oncologist anymore. So we have lots of challenges ahead of us. And um, I only mention it because there is not a person sitting here who doesn't wake up with challenges and difficult things. Not all of them are life and death, but probably most of them are pretty important. Could be difficulties in marriage, could be financial trouble, it could be toxic relationships at work, could be uh, you desire to be married and you're single, it could be difficulty with kids, it could be serious health problems of your own. There is not one of us that is not waking up with difficulties and wondering, where is God? God is offering to you his grace today for you to walk through that day, whatever it is. Whatever it is. Maybe you simply need to go and apologize to your wife of what happened within the argument the night before. And you need God's strength to get there because your pride is in the way. Now, maybe I should have said spouse instead of wife, but I'm a guy. So um, maybe it's uh, the people at work don't even know you're a Christian. So you're living out the life of Christ before them doesn't mean much if they don't know where the source is coming from. And the Lord wants you to open your mouth. I could list a hundred things of what it might be. And we're going to look at grace through the whole year in different circumstances. But this is what I want you to remember from today. The wrath of God is not opposed to his grace. God is one. And when God allows judgment or discipline in our lives, that is also his grace that we might know that he is the Lord. And if he has allowed trials and difficulties, or if he hasn't, if your life is going well, because God allows those seasons too by his grace, we are still to walk with him in obedience, and we can't do it in the energy of the flesh. We will simply slide away slowly, but inevitably. We take the grace that he is offering us, and that means we take whatever it is we need for that day, whether it's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, fruitfulness, gentleness, whatever it might be, and we appropriate by faith and then walk in faith and knowing that God is already empowering us to do what he wants us to do. This is the life of grace, and this is what we'll be studying all this year, and I look forward to it.
So let me close in prayer. Lord, I give you great praise. Great praise that you are the same yesterday, the same today, and the same tomorrow. And that your grace is evident throughout the pages of your dealings with Israel in the Old Testament and throughout the pages of the New Testament in your dealings with us. The very fact that we woke up this morning is evidence of your grace. The means that you have provided for shelter, for clothing, for food is evidence of your grace and that you offer your grace to us because you are a good God and you are a loving God. And we thank you that you have opened the way of salvation through the person of grace, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. We give you great praise for that. And thank you for the fellowship we have in him because of him, because of his work, and because we can show grace to one another. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of meeting together and discussing these things. Bring your word, not my words, bring your word to mind today, this week, that we may live by grace through faith. In Jesus' name, amen.